On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. And they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash roadie. That's BetterHelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. You gotta find a way to not really forget the memories, but know how to deal with them. On the trolley side, just a little bit of fire left. Like a path, they clear a path. I say, holy cow, they made a path for us. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one up each other, they're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, Stories from the Road. Welcome back to Stories from the Road. I'm your host, Phil Klein, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Chief Scott. Scott's got 25 years in the fire service. Uh, He's worked his way all the way up to the rank of chief. Uh, He's also a paramedic and uh, working for a major EMS service uh, in the Northeast and I'll, I'll let him decide how much of that he wants to share. But Scott, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Uh, I know you have a fantastic story to share. It's actually uh, one that has a pretty good outcome. So I'll turn the mic over to you and let you share your story from the road. Yeah, thanks a lot. So uh, Scott DePino, I've been in EMS for a while. I've also been in the fire department for a while. I got started out in EMS, ironically, because my mom was a nurse uh, at a local hospital. And she saw that I like biology. And uh, she said, maybe you should try medicine out. And um, I went down and I started volunteering in the uh, ER. And then I met some of the ambulance uh, EMTs and paramedics who were coming and going, both paid and volunteer. And I was like, man, that's what I want to do. And um, my mom thought I was crazy. She said that you need to go and uh, go to college and all that other business, which I did. Uh, The best thing out of college I took was my wife, who I'm still married to after 20 years, which is great. Uh, with three great kids, and she's also in the field, which is super helpful uh, when we have stressful moments. But um, from that springboard on, uh, my wife and I kind of followed each other's paths. At college, we had an EMS service. Uh, we became EMTs. We became EMT CCs, and then we became paramedics all together. Uh, so uh, we got along pretty well then, and we still get along pretty well now. Um, fast forward, I got involved in the fire service. It was one of the few ways that I could keep my certification up 
while I was still a young guy and looking for a job. And then I started working in New York City as a paramedic, uh, finally got a job in a suburb with a better commute and better pay, and uh, kept up my volunteering. Uh, when I got married and moved, I was never going to be a, a firefighter again. I didn't have time for it. Um, I had all the cards and certifications, but I thought that I had turned that page in my life. And ironically, um, a gentleman by the name of Rich, who lives in my town, uh, ran into me at a local function at the church. And uh, he kind of sorted me out, figured out who I was, and he was standing at my door the next day with an application. And uh, 17 years later, I'm in the chief's office. So I can't say enough about the fire department that I volunteer for. Uh, super professional, super progressive. Uh, the board, the chiefs, the officers, the membership, it's a unique community. It's kind of like a, a gem in the middle of, uh, of a lot of chaos uh, out on the island where I live. And um, we cover 30 square miles, about 30,000 people, a lot of highways and byways. And we get a lot of really unique calls uh, and a lot of calls that are at people's houses, churches, and so, so forth that maybe some people don't get. Uh, they're used to just going to doctor's offices, nursing homes. We really don't have that here. So it's a new place, and um, I'm very fortunate to be here. From that anyway, uh, when I became uh, a lieutenant in my company, they asked me if I wanted to be captain. I was hesitant. They elected me to be captain, and um, you're tasked then with running the meetings. So uh, I went down for a regular meeting on a Monday night, uh, I was kind of excited because we had a new cooking group and they were going to barbecue stuff. And it wasn't just grilling out barbecue to me because I have a couple Southern relatives is actually eating real food that's smoked. And I was super excited because uh, I was sick of hamburgers and hot dogs and it was kind of midsummer. Um, and with that, I went in the office. There was a couple of people who tracked me down and asked questions. And just like every other firehouse, we have the, the bee boop or the ding dong that goes off, a bunch of lights flash and a guy starts yelling over the PA. Uh, with a bunch of tones that said that there was a child drowning pretty close to where our station's located in our first due area, which is a big deal because when you cover 30 square miles, it could take us seven, eight, nine, ten 10 minutes to get to your house. Fortunately, in this case, uh, we actually uh, were on the road in about 35 seconds. Uh, I only know that because I look back because I, I couldn't believe how fast we got there. And um, we showed up we were presented with one of the ex-chiefs who lived around the block and went to the scene of the call and actually had already done us the service because he was a, a police officer in the same jurisdiction I work full-time as a paramedic. Uh, he actually retrieved the child from the pool and brought the child out to curbside, which saved us a ton of time and also kind of boxed the parents out of the equation, which sounds harsh to say, but sometimes in that emergent situation, it does save a lot of time because his emotions are high. And obviously, when a child gets hurt, always there's finger pointing, screaming, yelling, and uh, it can be very upsetting uh, for everyone involved. So presented, presented with the child, uh, we quickly loaded the child into the ambulance and uh, kind of took it from there. I just want to go back for just a second. You talked about the parents, and I know from my experience, it's always difficult to treat a child, kind of like you said, where the parents are so emotionally involved and, and upset by the incident. You know, they're just... I can't remember a time when I ever had a deal with a child where the parents just weren't completely distraught, and that always makes the job a little bit tougher for us. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that I didn't realize how tough it can get until I had actually children of my own. Um, kind of when you're younger, you're just kind of living for yourself. Obviously, I was lucky I met a girl very young in life who I'm still with, but when you have kids, man, it changes a lot of things. And a lot of times, and even with 
uh, with Dana, who was the patient, I actually, you know, could see pieces of my own kids there. Uh, you know, when you're presented with a child who's super sick in a diaper, who's the same size that your kid just was a year ago, uh, it definitely can strike emotions in you. And man, afterwards, you really can feel for the parents uh, going through the situation that they went through and whatever led up to the, the accident that happened. So definitely. Absolutely. And it, it certainly makes our job a little bit more difficult. And I agree when I was, you know, I, I was a medic when I was 20 years old and, you know, you hand me a baby or a young child and it didn't phase me. But when I went on and had my own kids, it really, really changed me in the way I, I reacted to certain calls. So it's a good point. Yeah, 100%. Uh, from there, uh, we have a 24-hour paid paramedic here. Uh, we also have a lot of volunteers uh, out in Dix Hills where I'm chief. And uh, the paid paramedic, fortunately, I'd worked with for off and on for 20 years because he actually worked in the city with me prior. So it was kind of neat. Uh, we were already on the same page, which is key when you have a really serious call and you're not trying to establish a rapport with the person who you're trying to help another person with. So uh, that, another EMT in the back, and uh, obviously that uh, – police officer who I discussed kind of went to work and we found a two-year-old Dana in cardiac arrest. Apparently they had a backyard barbecue and um, they had a great day. And dad went outside to kind of clean up while they were getting ready for cake, uh, doing the barbecue, tending to the dogs, turned around and found his daughter floating in the pool. Uh, luckily he had the wherewithal instead of panicking to actually reach out for help and call 911. All that coupled together with the fact that we were actually at the firehouse and got there so quickly gave us the best opportunity possible to have at least some kind of a positive outcome. I would have never thought that it would lead where it led in the end, but I definitely thought that, hey, at least to use the vernacular, we had something to work with, you know, instead of just kind of picking up the pieces, uh, which was kind of neat. So uh, after intubating the child, we have the bone gun, so we drilled her. Uh, she was soaking wet. On the monitor, she was like a PEA. After a ton of medicine, and uh, we started driving down to uh, the local hospital that has pediatrics. We actually, in the hospital, in the ambulance, about three or four minutes out, uh, got a pulse back. And also she had a decent blood pressure. So take me through some of what you just said. Not everybody that's listening understands the bone gun, PEA, or intubation. Uh, take me through some of the steps of what you did to the child in the back of the ambulance for anybody that may not have the background that you and I have. Sure. Obviously, I mean, the key piece to anybody who doesn't have a heartbeat is to do quality CPR. Uh, luckily, I had two BLS providers who, you know, that's their forte, man, and they were knocking it out. So it really freed up Rob, the other paramedic, and myself to really focus on the ALS stuff. And obviously, some of the stuff we do is just, I don't want to use the word chemistry experiment, but you kind of have to look at what you got, use the medicine that you have, and kind of push forward and see minute after minute how things are changing and how you're going to change your treatment. A lot of that stuff, especially when someone drowns, um, has to do with oxygenation and moving around the stuff in their bloodstream that doesn't belong there, carbon dioxide and so forth. So intubation, which puts a breathing tube in someone's lungs is a key piece, securing that down because she had a lot of water and stuff like that in her mouth. And you don't want that to go down someone's lungs. It's just going to combat what you're trying to do. Um, when I first started in EMS, we had this really crazy thing. It was like a long needle that used to screw into someone's leg. They still use it. I think it's like a jam sheety needle, IO needle. As things went uh, further on, like every good idea in EMS, it seems, uh, comes from the military. Uh, we got this IO drill, which looks kind of barbaric, but uh, it has super sharp needles that have an open lumen in them. And you can actually drill them into people's bones and use the middle of their bone where the marrow is 
which is a tremendous resource to move medication and fluid around that it goes directly into your bloodstream. If you really look at it, your marrow is responsible for a lot of key pieces of your body, making blood cells and so forth. To be able to access that uh, and landmark it, especially when someone is really like wet and just kind of a mess, uh, it makes it super easy for the paramedics to get, you know, that vital access to give medications that in the past we might have just been fishing around and hoping for the best. So this has definitely been a, for me, it's been a game changer, especially in uh, pediatrics, no doubt, but also in uh, people who are difficult to get IVs on. Yeah, it's definitely changed a lot of things for medics out there. I remember early in my career trying to get IVs on young kids, and it was always a difficult thing to do. And I imagine in this case, uh, someone that had been in, in, in a pool, a young child in cardiac arrest uh, would have been a real tough task for you guys. So it's great that you had that resource available. Yeah. So after we did all that, um, you know, you start to see changes on the EKG monitor. You know, she was like in a wide complex BEA, which usually indicates that someone has like a pH problem. So it made sense. I mean, she wasn't breathing for a while. So when you're not breathing for a while, your heart's not beating for a while, it kind of throws the chemistry off in your body. And uh, it's up to the paramedics to correct it with medication, with ventilation. And uh, that's what Rob and I did successfully. It's difficult because in the ambulance, we don't have all the resources they have in the hospital with lab work and so forth to really hone in and really, really solve that problem definitively. But uh, we got the job done enough that we got a good pulse, a good blood pressure, and she actually started breathing on her own a little bit, but uh, nothing uh, that would really, really be uh, considered you know, enough to sustain life so forth. So we obviously make pre-notifications. We try to bring these people to the right hospitals that have the right staff, whether it's a doctor, uh, you know, a special service that they need. And um, luckily, we have one within uh, 12 minutes of our area. So uh, it took about that amount of time to get down there. Uh, I will credit the person driving the ambulance who actually drove at a pace uh, that uh, allowed Rob, myself, and the other two EMTs to go to work and actually be comfortable and safe and got a lot of work done. I gave him a hug, actually, after it all, because, man, on some of the calls I've been at, you get tossed around back there, and uh, the guy driving just feels that he needs to get you there as fast as possible, and sometimes that's the worst thing to do. And man, he was, he was on the money. Great guy. And he did a phenomenal job. When I had Robin Rob on the, uh, on the podcast, uh, probably a couple of months ago now, you know, talking about their call and they talked about how they hated escorts because that would, that would happen. And I remember when I was on the same job you were on, you know, it would always be a rookie cop or something that was driving my ambulance to the hospital and just getting tossed all over the place. And, and you're right. You can't work in the back of the ambulance when someone is, you know, throwing you all over the place. They mean well, they're trying to get you somewhere fast. But it just doesn't work when you're trying to, to you know, provide quality care in the back of an ambulance. So having that, that person up front that's driving, that's calm, that's skilled uh, is incredibly important, especially on calls like this. 100%. 100%. And he did a phenomenal job. So uh, we ended up getting to the ER. Um, you know, sometimes it's a crapshoot when you show up. It could be busy. It could not be busy. Sometimes the services you request show up. Sometimes they don't. Uh, we were lucky. They took us very seriously. I guess uh, I don't remember exactly who was on the hospital radio or if we actually just did it over the dispatch radio, which sometimes we do if things are serious and people are kind of tight on time in the back. There was every person down in the ER. We could hardly walk around. Uh, they were all over the place. They were right on top of Dana asking all sorts of uh, questions and uh, called down all the specialists who happened to be there. It was actually fortunate that it was a weeknight and not a weekend, maybe, because, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who aren't in hospital on weekends or the overnight. So it actually maybe worked to her favor. But as I've said from the beginning of this, I, I think everything kind of worked to her favor. Her parents remaining calm, calling 911, us being in the firehouse, getting there rapidly, 
the gentleman bringing the child out to the curbside, uh, having to work with a paramedic who I'd worked with before, having competent EMTs, a great driver. I mean, I don't know what could have gone wrong given all those cards. They were just kind of just lining right up, which was awesome. Yeah, it sounded like uh, just a perfect mix of everything you needed at that time. And in this case, you know, just it, everything aligned for this for this call. We kind of, I don't want to say we forgot about the call because this is one of the few calls that actually one of the EMTs requested that peer support team to come down. We have one out uh, in Suffolk and they came and they spoke to us. Whenever they're called, I try to attend because I feel if the senior people on the crew uh, don't attend, that it kind of doesn't have credibility. So I try to show up and you tell your story and, you know, give the younger people who haven't maybe had as much street time a chance to open up and understand that their feelings are real and it's all good because we all have those feelings. We just sometimes, some of us put them in boxes. Some of us have felt it before, so we know how to deal with it. But we did that. That was that was pretty decent. And um, randomly, uh, about a week later, I ran another call, uh, went down to the hospital, and a nurse approached me in the ER. And she said, you know, Chief, you're not going to believe this. Dana's alive, and she's doing really well. I'm like, what? Really? And uh, lo and behold, um, we tried to get upstairs, but she was under an alias, and um, her uncle was there, and not her parents. And we really hadn't obviously met her parents. So it's always uh, – I feel the end of our career, like – we always want some kind of feedback. We rarely get it. I try to get a little more feedback, especially for the younger folk, to show them that what they do is worth it. Because a lot of times we show up and you're just like, I don't even know if it made a difference. Does this matter? And a lot of times it matters a lot, but we just don't get the feedback to validate our feeling or you know, our sense of need. And um, that was an amazing feeling. I was like, I can't believe I, that, that was enough for me. It wasn't enough for one of the EMTs that I was with. And uh, she wanted to know. So She's a great girl, and uh, I, I pursued it, and we eventually got upstairs. It took about three weeks. Uh, we got upstairs, and we met the family. The mother almost tackled me in the hallway. She was, she wanted to have that closure of the people who helped her daughter and at least gave them time to spend with her that she wasn't just snatched from them. It was an amazing feeling. I, I can't – one of the few times in my life that I felt like that that you were just like, wow, I, I, I actually made a difference here. Fast forward uh, a bunch of days, Christina, her mom, and uh, reached out to me and uh, out to Marissa, the EMT, and actually told us, Dana's coming home and we want you to be there. And I said, she's coming home? And she said, she's coming home. Obviously, with some skilled nursing care, um, she needed uh, you know some supportive stuff, but um, she was coming home. It took her 50 days to do it, but I was flabbergasted. Uh, what a strong girl. Uh, two years old, coming home after 50 days in the hospital, uh, survived infections, survived all the odds. And um, here we are. She's coming home. So, of course, we showed up in mass. Uh, everyone was there. It was super cool to see her come home uh, with her family. They were thrilled that we were there to welcome her home. It was super neat to bring the uh, police officers who were involved from Suffolk County to reconnect because they hadn't connected since then. That was it was amazing. And since then, that's going on about four years ago. Um, we've had the opportunity to have multiple interactions with, with Dana and her family. Every day I see her, I'm, I'm, she just gets stronger and stronger. Uh, she obviously has some issues uh, from a little bit of a hypoxic brain injury, but one of the neatest experiences I've ever had in my life, uh, she actually went to school. And when she went to school, her parents called up Marissa and myself, and um, they said, Dana's going to school. And I said, wow, that's amazing. She asked, she, the bus comes tomorrow at nine o'clock. You better be here. I said, why would you want me to be there? Well, if it wasn't for you and Marissa, she wouldn't be going to school. 
And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll come. I'll definitely, I want to clap for her. Her parents were insisting that we put her on the bus, which I just was, I didn't even know what to say. I was speechless. I actually started to cry because I was like, this is one of the biggest honors of my life. Aside from, you know, things that have happened in my own family, my children, my wife, to be that involved and that important to someone else's family uh, is uh, super unique. And since then, I mean, she just turned six the other day and uh, we got invited back to her birthday. Ice cream social. Me, my friend, me, all the friends from the firehouse, uh, Marissa, the EMT, my kids, uh, they all know her now. They know her sister. And uh, it's it's been a great story. They do fundraisers for her. We participate. And she's just an inspiration, an inspiration to me, at least, that, you know, anybody can beat the odds and you got to keep grinding on. And uh, nothing that we do out in the field, you should just uh, write off it that it doesn't matter because... It could be that one call that you could write off and think that the outcome's not going to be so great that you could fast forward four years and it had the biggest effect of maybe almost any call I ever did. And um, like I said, taking a group photo of her last week when she turned six uh, was uh, it's pretty cool. You know, it's cool to have you know those that that one call that you know call it a career call you can call whatever you want but that connection to to someone you know I, I think for me one of the coolest things as a medic was to meet somebody for the second time when the first time you met them they were in really really bad shape maybe even not you know maybe even without a heartbeat and, and not breathing and then you get a chance to meet them later on and I think you create an inherent bond and it sounds you know, like in this case, that bond is with the family and now that bond is with the child. And it wouldn't surprise me one bit, you know, when, when she graduates high school, if you're not standing there or when she gets married, if you're not at the wedding, I think that's a lifelong bond that you created because to a certain extent, you know, you gave this child her life back, or at least was a big part of the team that gave this child her life back and gave her back to her family. Um, and in, you know, this day and age, you know, the way uh, first responders are sometimes, sometimes treated, I think it's really cool to have that connection and to have this type of call. So I'm, I'm really glad for you. I'm glad for the team that, you know, worked so hard to help this child out. But like I said, it wouldn't surprise me one bit if you are connected to this child for the rest of your life. Yeah. And I, I hope to be, I mean, it's, uh, so far it's worked out and every time I'm there, it's, it's super rewarding. Um, it reminds, it definitely recharges me. I remember when, you know, I saw her for her birthday, not to beleaguer the point, but you know, I was kind of having a grindy day, kind of turned the corner. You see her and you, you remember that whatever you're going through, she's already beat it. She should, she just revitalizes me to kind of just keep grinding on. I keep doing what I do and uh, be the best dad, father, fire chief, paramedic that I can be day in, day out. And always remember that, you know, you make a difference uh, when you put the coat on or you strap on the badge or go in the chief's car, turn the lights on and go to a call. Uh, it could be a life-changing event, not only for you, but for someone else. And I think that summarizes pretty well why we do what we do. I agree. I agree. So one last question before I let you get out of here. Um, tell me about your relationship with Marissa, especially since this call. She's an EMT. Um, I'm guessing you were the senior medic. Um, on this call. So tell me how, how that relationship um, has evolved, I guess, since this call. Do you guys talk about it? Do you talk about other calls? Does she see you as somewhat of a mentor, especially since you went through this experience together? It's interesting. She called me a mentor the other day, which I never really considered myself that. She started out in my department as like a 19-year-old girl from town, didn't know her at all. I'm a transplant out here. I grew up in Westbury. So uh, when I moved out here, we moved out here for a lot of reasons that had nothing to do with me, mostly to do with school district and a bigger house and more property. Luckily, we, we were able to do all that. Uh, when I joined the fire department here, uh, we are lucky to have 120 members in the rescue squad. 
you always have people who kind of shine a little brighter. And uh, she's definitely one of them. Very smart, bright, and she just kind of picks up things. And um, through her becoming EMT, making a ton of calls, uh, she's always kind of latched on a little bit and uh, taking things in stride. Great attitude. This was really, I think, like a defining moment for her that she finally had a, a time to shine, potentially have a great outcome, which we had. Uh, but my connection with her has definitely grown because of this call. Uh, obviously, when you share a bond with someone who you probably would have never run into in another walk of life. If you worked in an office or, you know, at the local coffee shop, uh, it probably wouldn't work out that way. But just like I have a bond with Dana and her family, you know, you have a bond with the providers you were there with. Since this call, she actually is the first female three time in a row rescue captain that the Dix Hills Fire Department's ever had. Uh, so her drive and her willingness to not only move herself forward, but the department forward and her dedication obviously is recognized far beyond just me, but by the 200 members of my fire department. So I see her almost every day and we talk a ton and uh, she still picks my brain about a lot, but uh, she's got a lot of her own answers now, which is the way it's supposed to be. So I'm trying to encourage her to go either become a paramedic, a nurse or move forward. She's just turned 26. So I told her it's time to uh, start uh, moving forward. That was the day, that was when I started uh, taking this stuff for real. So uh, hopefully she takes that advice and uh, she uses her talents and, and moves on. And I'm I'm super proud to be part of you know mentoring anyone, but especially someone who's just you know knocked it out of the park. She's done a great job. Well, it sounds like she's real lucky to have you in her corner, um, Scott. That that was an amazing story. I. We, we talk a lot about the, the really bad stuff that happens out there. And while the incident itself was a pretty bad one, the outcome was phenomenal. And I'm really glad that you were able to come on the podcast and, and share a win. I like sharing wins every once in a while. So um, thank you for being here. And I hope that you'll come back and maybe pull another story or five of them out of your, you know, out of your back pocket and, and share some more stories with the listeners. I'm sure uh, they'll be glad to come back and listen to you share another story. That'd be awesome. I'd love to come back. And uh, thanks for all you do. It's always great to have somebody who's out there being an advocate for us and uh, showing the good work we do. Like you said, sometimes the light is not so great, but uh, on things like this and then some of the shows I've watched you've done so far, it's uh, great to see people out there doing great work. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you're listening on. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this or other podcasts we're producing, please visit browndogsmedia.com. Thank you for listening.